Part One of Chapter Twelve of My Days and Dreams by Edward Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Personalities, Section One. It is curious that with my somewhat antinomian tendencies, I should have gone to Trinity Hall, which was and is before all a law college and should thus have been thrown into close touch with the legal element in life as an undergraduate whose days were consumed in boating and mathematics this was not noticeable but it was not entirely after my heart when i became a fellow to find myself in a society which was almost wholly composed of barristers and in after life to discover that my friends of early days had nearly all become eminent king's counsels and judges just before my entering trinity hall an undergraduate of that college robert romer had become senior wrangler and i really believe this had something to do with my selecting the college for myself the hall men were hugely delighted as this distinction in the tripos had never come to the college before and more so because Romer was a boating man and rowed in the first boat, and a myth grew up, possibly encouraged by the subject himself, and in order to show how easily a real boating man can do anything he turns himself to, that he passed his examinations by the light of nature and never needed to swat like an ordinary mortal others however said and this was a more likely explanation that he used to sit at his study table with a pot of beer and a sporting journal before him while in the open drawer of the table lay his mathematical books and papers when a knock came at the door it was the simplest thing in the world to close the drawer and be found consuming his ale after his degree he remained at cambridge for a time as mathematical coach but was by no means a success in that line he could not sympathize with a learner's difficulties and when a pupil came to him with a problem which he could not understand romer would say what you can't understand that you can't understand that then god help you i can't naturally he soon gave up teaching and took to the bar after my degree when we were fellows of the college together i saw quite a little of him a rough muscular brained damn your eyes type of man and as may be imagined quite ignorant of art and literature but good-natured and healthy later however the sheer physical force of his mentality took him to the highest reaches of the legal profession lord justice of appeal and he passed out of my sphere another senior wrangler whom i knew fairly well as he headed the tripos in my own year eighteen sixty eight and who afterwards became lord justice in the court of patents was j fletcher moulton he was one of those people who without any great depth of intellect or even of character possessed an extraordinary rapidity of mind his information was encyclopedic and in examinations 
he threw off his papers with the airy ease of a tree throwing off its dead leaves in autumn to the wonderment indeed both of examiners and fellow students yet i am not aware that he ever contributed anything very original in the study of mathematics or law or in any other department of human thought great success in examinations does naturally not as a rule go with originality of thought w k clifford who had undoubtedly one of the finest mathematical scientific and philosophical minds of the period of which i am speaking was only second wrangler and my friend robert f muirhead who as smith's prizeman and later has contributed important papers on mathematical subjects was nowhere to speak of in his tripos one could hardly of course expect that originality and the pigeonhole mind should go together to return to our judges that men like romer and moulton should attain the highest places in their profession is natural but i confess i have been surprised having known them so well in boating days at the kind of men who are commonly made high court or county court judges i will not mention names exclamation point but here is one for instance who was captain of the boat club in my time a physically powerful but mentally quite muddle-headed person here is another whose forte was boxing no harm in that but one might have wished that he had other interests besides a rather brutish and decidedly illiterate type a third whose constitution both physical and mental was feeble but who had powerful relatives in the legal profession all these were of the kind that have considerable difficulty in passing their elementary examinations and there were many more of the same kind nevertheless having once got their feet on the ladder they have slowly and gradually by family influence or sheer physical health an important thing climbed nearly to the top no blame to them certainly but one cannot help asking and i put the question especially to labor m p s are these the sort of men we really require for such posts let alone their want of bookish culture which perhaps does not so much matter we cannot but ask what do men of this class who have been brought up at a public school who have worked hard at boating or cricket at the university who afterwards have buried themselves in law chambers and the purlieus of the courts and whose acquaintance with manual workers is pretty well confined to scouts and gyps and an occasional gamekeeper in the country what do they know about the great mass people on whom they have to sit in judgment about the habits and temperament and customs of life of the latter and how on earth are they qualified to bring order and good sense and real sympathy and understanding into that most important branch of public life the administration of the law these are indeed questions to which serious answers will have to be given ere long 
i have already mentioned henry fawcett afterwards postmaster-general who was a fellow of trinity hall at the time of which i am speaking the story of his blindness is well known it was only just after his degree that he was out pheasant shooting with his father in a rather thick covert the father fired at a bird unknowing that his son was standing in the line of fire two small shots struck the latter one entering into each eye a strange and fatal chance it was the father i think who told me that as soon as henry knew that he was permanently blinded he said well it shan't make any difference in my plans of life and certainly it made very little as may be guessed from that fawcett was a man of outstanding pluck and vitality a vitality which would have been almost overbearing if it had not been tempered by extreme good nature and his force of character combined with very democratic sympathies enabled him despite his blindness to do valuable work in parliament and in connection with the post office the adoring gratitude of the father at the public success of the son whom he had so badly crippled was most touching and he would follow his son about the country and attend his public meetings for the mere pleasure of witnessing his success as fawcett was member for brighton and my father lent his support to his candidature he and mrs fawcett used frequently to dine with us at brunswick square and i saw a good deal of them both at brighton and at cambridge fawcett's pluck and vitality were however sometimes a trial to his friends i have a rather too vivid recollection of riding with him over the brighton downs or along the green lanes of cambridgeshire carpenter he would say this is a nice piece of grass isn't it let's have a canter then he would set off at an amazing rate and i would have to keep close alongside of him with a sharp lookout and warning for unexpected ditches and stone heaps and in momentary fear of a headlong fall which for a man of his weight would have been a terrible thing or he would insist on my coming to skate with him in winter on the cane he would go five or six miles down the river and back he holding one end of a stick and i the other that was all very well if the ice was sound but everyone knows what river ice is and i have often skated with him when i being a lightweight passed over easily while he holding on to the stick and a pace or two behind was cracking through at every other step the prospect of having to fish a public man weighty in every sense out of a flowing river was certainly not pleasant however i am happy to say that i was not present with him at any disaster except once that was at a public meeting where he was speaking at brighton i was on the platform a stone was thrown by someone at the back of the hall which struck him on the forehead causing blood to flow great sensation ensued for a moment he felt a little faint and relapsed into a chair ladies rushed up on all sides with smelling salts however in a few minutes he was all right 
and resumed his speech afterwards he said to me i didn't mind the stone but those scent bottles made me sick so it will be seen that he and i had points in common since his death mrs fawcett and i have still met not unfrequently generally perhaps as joint speakers on some woman's suffrage platform charles wentworth dilke was a hall man he had just taken his degree when i arrived as a freshman but he stayed up in college for a year or so more on account of some law examination or other he never became a fellow but was an enthusiastic lover of his college and was always very good to us undergraduates i remember breakfasting with him at his rooms and his showing me penciled on his door jam the record of his hours of work day by day for the last year or so seventy hours per week as regular as clockwork he was then and afterwards always an amazing worker his room even in those youthful days pigeonholed all over with notes and documents he was also a man with a high sense of chivalry and honor and i have no doubt that the contretemps which threw him for a time out of public life and which his chivalry forbade him to explain weighed pretty heavily on him his love of facts and statistics so conspicuous throughout his political life was shared by his brother ashheaton and it used to be said that the two brothers never enjoyed themselves more thoroughly than when sitting knee to knee they spent an hour or so in imparting facts to each other another politician of my time though a little younger than myself was augustine burrell even in those days he was chiefly known for his quaint humours and jokes though the term burrelling had not then been adopted but being as an undergraduate somewhat interested in politics and not at all interested in rowing he did not bulk largely in the eyes of his contemporaries and i fear was a little neglected in a late letter to me he chafes me in his own native style on my academic and clerical past saying i have the most vivid recollection of you as junior tutor the marvellous neatness of your now discarded white tie lives especially in my untidy mind socialism and millthorpe i need hardly say swept me out of these academic and semi-political surroundings into a different world the world of a new society which was arising and forming within the structure of the old william morris represented this new society more effectively and vitally than any one else of that period because away and beyond the scientific forecast he gave expression to the emotional presentment and ideal of a sensible free human brotherhood as in john ball or news from nowhere his sturdy brusque sea captain-like figure with his fine outlined face and tossing hair his forcible unpolished speech yet all so direct sincere enthusiastic brought inspiration and confidence wherever he went 
and for a time as i have already said there was a widespread belief that the socialist league was going to knit up all the united kingdom in one bond of new life having set the sheffield socialists going in eighteen eighty six he came one day not long after to speak at chesterfield and stayed at millthorpe a night or two i remember his arriving from the train with jeffrey's book after london in his hands which had just come out the book delighted him with its prophecy of an utterly ruined and deserted london gone down in swamps and malaria with brambles and weeds spreading through slum streets and fashionable squares and pet dogs reverting to wolfish and carrion hunting lives and he read page after page of it to us with glee that evening as we sat round the fire he hated modern civilization and london as its representative with a fierce hatred its shams its hypocrisies its stuffy indoor life its cheap jack style its mean and mongrel ideals with a hatred indeed which i cannot but think thousands and hundreds of thousands following him will one day share once he said to me talking about his own life i have spent i know a vast amount of time designing furniture and wallpapers carpets and curtains but after all i am inclined to think that sort of thing is mostly rubbish and i would prefer for my part to live with the plainest whitewashed walls and wooden chairs and tables he certainly was no drawing-room sort of man his immense energy did not run to small talk as a rule in conversation seized by his subject and oblivious of the arguments of others he would jump from his chair and stride up and down the room in ardent monologue condemning the present or picturing the future or the past i once asked his daughter may what he did in the way of recreation my father never takes any recreation she said he merely changes his work and so it was when he had been toiling at merton abbey all day and preaching socialism at a street corner all the evening then at night sick of the ugly life around him he would come home and dream himself away into the fourteenth century and for his recreation produce a masterpiece like john ball be it said nevertheless that he did sometimes relax and that when in the humour no one enjoyed a pipe and a glass and the jovial company of friends and telling of good stories more than william morris he certainly did not like anything resembling sentimentality a friend tells me that he used to recite the following stanza apparently delighting in its quaintness but whether morris composed it himself or had found it elsewhere he does not know i sits with my feet in a brook and if any one asks me for why i hits him a crack with my crook for its sentiment kills me says i among those who came from time to time to speak for our socialist group in sheffield 
or to stay at our commonwealth cafe were besides william morris two notable personalities peter kropotkin and annie besant their work and influence both worldwide the one in the anarchist and the other in the theosophist field have been really important though never myself strictly identified with either of these movements i have been in touch with them and consequently in more or less friendly relation with their two leading spirits during a long period nearly thirty years both characters are certainly remarkable for their vigor their sincerity their ability and devotion kropotkin at the age of seventy and after fifty years of passionate conflict with government and authority still retains his sunny and almost childlike temperament and still believes in the speedy oncoming of an age of perfectly voluntary and harmonious cooperation in the human race indeed it is mainly due to him that this magnificent dream has spread so far and wide over the world and has done so much as it has towards its own realization the dramatic circumstances too of kropotkin's own life have greatly helped his early escapes from prison and from death his abandonment of a princely inheritance to become the companion and fellow prisoner of criminals and outcasts his later life spent in poverty and among obscure circles of enthusiasts these things combined with encyclopedic knowledge and high scientific reputation have compelled attention and respect as is the case of many ardent social reformers and certainly in the case of most notorious anarchists there is a charming naivete about kropotkin it is so easy if you believe that all human evil is summed up in the one fatal word government or it may be that the word is white slave traffic or war or drink or anything else to order your life and your theories accordingly everything is explained by its relation to one thing it is easy but it is misleading and kropotkin's writings despite their erudition suffer from this naivete whether it be history his french revolution or natural history his mutual aid or economic theory his parole d'une revolte the reader finds one solution for everything and the countervailing facts and principles consistently though certainly not intentionally ignored this detracts from the value of his writings though in justice it should be said that the principles on which kropotkin so vigorously insists that is individual liberty and free association are of foundational importance in a country like russia obsessed by authority and officialism it is not unnatural that its reformers such as tolstoy and kropotkin should be almost over-conscious of the governmental evil and this fact rather encourages the hope that russia may one day after all be the leader 
in the great european reaction towards a freer and more voluntary state of society end of part one of chapter twelve